Hello everyone, welcome to the Warif podcast, a place for dialogue on development that promotes social, economic and environmental progress. My name is Abir and I'm your host. It's my joy to connect with fellow developmental professionals, practitioners, academics and enthusiasts. My mission is to make the world a more kind, safe and clean place. I believe even small steps in the right direction can cause a chain reaction towards larger positive impact. Let's meet our guests and learn how they're working towards a better world. Hello everyone to a new episode of Warif. Today we're going to talk about the road to resolving conflict through compassion, forgiveness and equanimity. Our guest today is Margaret Cullen. I'll give you a little brief about Margaret. She's an inspiring person that I highly look up to. Margaret Cullen is a licensed psychotherapist and was one of the first people to become a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher. For over 25 years, she has pioneered secular contemplative programs for a wide variety of populations, including physicians, nurses, HIV-positive men, cancer patients, overweight women, military spouses, college students, clinicians, and educators, as well as contemplative interventions for research studies at Stanford, UCSF, Portland State, Penn State, University of Michigan, and University of Miami. In 2013, she developed a mindfulness and compassion program for military spouses. And in 2015, she co-authored the book on mindfulness-based emotional balance, an evidence-based program that she piloted across the U.S. and Canada. As a clinician, Margaret was a facilitator of support groups for cancer patients and their loved ones for 25 years. In 2010, she was invited by uh, Thupton Jinpa to co-develop the Compassion Cultivation Training through the Center for Compassion, Altruism, Research and Education at the Stanford School of Medicine and currently as founding faculty for the Compassion Institute. She is also the founder of uh, Compassion Corporation, a nonprofit that provides grants for compassion teachers to offer free programs to under-resourced communities around the world. A mediator for almost 40 years, Margaret has had dozens of intensive retreats and has written extensively on mindfulness. Nothing brings her greater joy than contributing to a more compassionate world. Welcome, Margaret, to a new episode of Atwarif. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Abir. I'm delighted to be here. So for starters, let's begin with your academic and professional background. As a registered uh, psychotherapist, what have your responsibilities been like through your different career choices? Thank you. I... Very early in my training as a therapist, I began doing groups with cancer patients and discovered how much I enjoyed the group process. And that became the foundation for a lot of the teaching work that I did throughout the years. That's very interesting. What convinced you to pursue a life as a teacher and therapist? That story is from my perspective, one that kind of happened on its own. Uh, there's a, a Tibetan, famous Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Trimpa Rinpoche, one of the first to bring these practices to the West in the 60s in Colorado. And he's quoted as saying, follow the pretense of accident. And in a way, that's what I did. I began meditating um, while I was working in the film business in Hollywood in a very high stress, you know, very, very challenging situation. And half the year I would spend meditating and half the year on big Hollywood movie sets. And it was a very private thing, my meditation, but it led me to want to do something more meaningful with my life. Mm. And then kind of accidentally, people started finding out that I was a meditator 
and began asking me to teach and do different things as a meditator. And it eventually just became my, my life path, my career. That's quite interesting. Did you meditate for six months? Because you said half the year. Well, the longest uh, silent meditation retreat I did was three months of silence. But wow. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a long retreat. But the time off usually wasn't six months on and six months off. You know, I would work on a film for two or three months and then go on a retreat and then do another film and then go on a retreat. And it was kind I, of crazy because they were very extreme things to do, you know. Are you still doing film at the moment? Well, life has become a retreat. Uh, during COVID, I think for almost everyone, really in the past two and a half years. Yeah. And I would say that more and more as I got older, the line between retreat and life got more and more blurry. So this began to happen before the pandemic. Mm. And what made you think that it became blurry? Because really what we're cultivating in meditation practice on retreat is a way of life. And Indeed. it isn't brought back to everyday life. There's really no point to it. Um, and it's a lifestyle. You have to do it every day. You have to commit yourself and dedicate some time for it, I guess, every day, right? You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I like you how flexible you are. <laughs> I'm I very think- conventional. <laughs> I think we get into trouble, a lot of people, because I've been teaching meditation for a long time, I think a lot of people get into trouble with this feeling that they have to do it every day, and that can become an obstacle. So whoever is listening, I just really want you to know that you don't have to set it up as something so demanding. It does make a lot of sense. What feels good to your body, you listen to your intuition, as as you mentioned, and we don't have to meditate every day. It depends on, we go with the flow. That's the best way to do it, I guess, Um, not to force it. That's what I understood from you. So I have a curious question. Did you ever have a moment that sparked your first interest in this field? Yes. It's kind of a funny story. I was in my late 20s, and I was dating someone, a rather flamboyant man from Morocco, who was in the real estate business. And he went on on a 10-day silent retreat. And this was in the late 70s. And he was kind of the last person that I would have expected to go on a retreat. It it just, he, he was a kind of high-powered real estate person by day, and he was in a rock band at night, and he wasn't really kind of your typical meditator. And he went on a retreat and he came back, and it clearly had a huge impact on him. I was very impressed. And I was also at the time really kind of lost in my own life, not sure what I wanted to do, not sure who I was, going... Hello everyone, welcome to the Wariif podcast, a place for dialogue on development that promotes social, economic, and environmental progress. My name is Abir, and I'm your host. It's my joy to connect with fellow developmental professionals, practitioners, academics, and enthusiasts. My mission is to make the world a more kind, safe, and clean place. I believe even small steps in the right direction can cause a chain reaction towards larger positive impact. Let's meet our guests and learn how they're working towards a better world. Hello everyone to a new episode of Warif. Today we're going to talk about the road to resolving conflict through compassion, forgiveness, and equanimity. Our guest today is Margaret Cullen. I'll give you a little brief about Margaret. She's an inspiring 
person that I highly look up to. Margaret Cullen is a licensed psychotherapist and was one of the first people to become a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher. For over 25 years, she has pioneered secular contemplative programs for a wide variety of populations, including physicians, nurses, HIV-positive men, cancer patients, overweight women, military spouses, college students, clinicians, and educators, as well as contemplative interventions for research studies at Stanford, UCSF, Portland State, Penn State, University of Michigan, and University of Miami. In 2013, she developed a mindfulness and compassion program for military spouses. And in 2015, she co-authored the book on mindfulness-based emotional balance, an evidence-based program that she piloted across the U.S. and Canada. As a clinician, Margaret was a facilitator of support groups for cancer patients and their loved ones for 25 years. In 2010, she was invited by uh, Thupton Jinpa to co-develop the Compassion Cultivation Training through the Center for Compassion, Altruism, Research and Education at the Stanford School of Medicine and currently as founding faculty for the Compassion Institute. She is also the founder of uh, Compassion Corporation, a nonprofit that provides grants for compassion teachers to offer free programs to under-resourced communities around the world. A mediator for almost 40 years, Margaret has had dozens of intensive retreats and has written extensively on mindfulness. Nothing brings her greater joy than contributing to a more compassionate world. Welcome, Margaret, to a new episode of Atwarif. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Abir. I'm delighted to be here. So for starters, let's begin with your academic and professional background. As a registered uh, psychotherapist, what have your responsibilities been like through your different career choices? Thank you. I... Very early in my training as a therapist, I began doing groups with cancer patients and discovered how much I enjoyed the group process. And that became the foundation for a lot of the teaching work that I did throughout the years. That's very interesting. What convinced you to pursue a life as a teacher and therapist? That story is from my perspective, one that kind of happened on its own. Uh, there's a, a Tibetan, famous Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Trumpa Rinpoche, one of the first to bring these practices to the West in the 60s in Colorado. And he's quoted as saying, follow the pretense of accident. And in a way, that's what I did. I began meditating um, while I was working in the film business in Hollywood in a very high stress, you know, very, very challenging situation. And half the year I would spend meditating and half the year on big Hollywood movie sets. And it was a very private thing, my meditation, but it led me to want to do something more meaningful with my life. Mm. And then kind of accidentally, people started finding out that I was a meditator and began asking me to teach and do different things as a meditator. And it eventually just became my, my life path, my career. That's quite interesting. Did you meditate for six months? Because you said half the year. Well, the longest uh, silent meditation retreat I did was three months of silence. But wow, <laughs> yeah, that was that was a long retreat. But the time off usually wasn't six months on and six months off. You know, I would work on a film for two or three months and then go on a retreat and then do another film and then go on a retreat. And it was kind of crazy because they were very extreme things to do, you know. Are you still doing film at the moment? Well, life has become a retreat uh, during COVID. I think for almost everyone, really, in the past two and a half years. Yeah. And I would say that more and more as I got older, the line between retreat and life 
got more and more blurry. So this began to happen before the pandemic. Mm. And what made you think that it became blurry? Because really what we're cultivating in meditation practice on retreat is a way of life. And Indeed. it isn't brought back to everyday life. There's really no point to it. And um, it's a lifestyle. You have to do it every day. You have to commit yourself and dedicate some time for it, I guess, every day, right? You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I like you how flexible you are. <laughs> I'm very conventional. (laughs) I think we get into trouble. A lot of people, because I've been teaching meditation for a long time, I think a lot of people get into trouble with this feeling that they have to do it every day. And that can become an obstacle. So Mm -hmm. whoever is listening, I just really want you to know that you don't have to set it up as something so demanding. It does make a lot of sense. What feels good to your body, you listen to your intuition, as as you mentioned. And we don't have to meditate every day. It depends on, we go with the flow. That's the best way to do it, I guess. Um, Not to force it. That's what I understood from you. So I have a curious question. Did you ever have a moment that sparked your first interest in this field? Yes. It's kind of a funny story. I was in my late 20s, and I was dating someone, a rather flamboyant man from Morocco, who was in the real estate business. And he went on on a 10-day silent retreat. And this was in the late 70s. And he was kind of the last person that I would have expected to go on a retreat. It, It just, he, he was a kind of high-powered real estate person by day, and he was in a rock band at night, and he wasn't really kind of your typical meditator. And he went on a retreat and he came back, and it clearly had a huge impact on him. I was very impressed. And I was also at the time really kind of lost in my own life, not sure what I wanted to do, not sure who I was going in and out of depression. So I was suffering in my own way and looking for ways that I could address that. Mm. So that was the moment when Jacques came back from this retreat and I thought, okay, there's something there for me. And I signed up. I had never meditated before and I signed up for a 10-day silent retreat. And the Mm. rest was history, as, as we say. Interesting. Thing. So what population does your work usually un- uh, encompass? My work almost always is a pretty mainstream professional population. It's very varied. It's how I met you. It's wonderful yes. that I meet people from all over the world and really incredibly interesting people like you who have oh, a spark of interest in compassion in the power of contemplative practices to bring the spirit of peace, a possibility of reconciliation to our very troubled world. So, you know, the populations are, as you mentioned in your kind introduction, have been very varied, Mm -hmm. both uh, nationality, professions, I've done work in prisons. I've done work on military. Tell us more about that. Do you feel comfortable? Yes, sure. Like a story or something that comes to your mind. In 2016, I started something called Compassion Corps that you mentioned. The idea was to support all the certified compassion teachers that I'd been training to do the work that they love, the philanthropy that they love, by giving them small grants so they could offer programs for free to people who couldn't afford Mm. And one of the first grants went to a colleague who's become a dear friend named Laura Naughton, who wanted to do a program at Angola Penitentiary, the largest maximum security prison in the United States. Laura Mm -hmm. 
uh, was a victim of a violent crime herself. Mm -hmm. And she went into Angola and offered the eight-week compassion training that you took, Abir, to to inmates at Angola. And Mm -hmm. the program grew because Laura is a brilliant teacher, because the inmates loved it. And it grew into a whole compassion movement at Angola Penitentiary. This one program flowered through Laura and the support that we were able to give her to the point where we actually created compassion days in the prison where we brought 150 people from outside the prison into the prison for a conference on compassion in a security prison. We did this three times and we created teaching assistants there and the program grew and grew. And now Laura and her teaching assistants have just completed a book about it that we hope to publish soon. Wow. And how was the feedback? Was it positive? It's been unbelievable, truly. Amazing. Um, Very humbling to see how much compassion is already in a place like Angola Penitentiary, kind of the last place you imagine compassion to flourish. Mm. Because the circumstances are yeah. so harsh, they're so difficult, and yet, of course, there for compassion and the kindness that's already there. It really changed my life to see it because I just had to change everything I thought about all the stereotypes that I had. So you were the co-author on a mindfulness-based emotional balance book. What was the need for this book to be published? And what are the key takeaways for those who haven't read it? So again, this was kind of following the pretense of accident. I had been invited to write uh, a curriculum for educators, bringing together emotion training with mindfulness. And I piloted this around the US and Canada. Quite a bit of research was done on it. And then the publisher, a new harbinger, asked me if I wanted to write a workbook about the program. And I did. It really wasn't my idea. It just kind of unfolded. What happened at that point is that mindfulness-based stress reduction had been around already for about 20 years. I'll see if I can make this long story as short as possible. There was a meeting with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala about emotion and a conversation about how to bring Western psychology around emotion together with contemplative training to really potentiate Mm. both of them. And out of that came the first research study, which was called Cultivating Emotional Balance, which I co-taught at UCSF. And then these other programs grew out of that first research study. And I do find that we aren't typically taught how to work with our emotions. We aren't taught this in school. We aren't really taught this kind of explicitly through our religious practices or at home. Emotions are often suppressed, actually. So people feel threatened by their emotions. They don't really understand them. So bringing emotion, the kind of theoretical side, the understanding what emotions are, together with mindful awareness of emotions, really helps people find regulation and balance. So I have a question. I'm wondering, maybe you have an answer to this, because equanimity is a word that has different meanings in different languages. So I would like to ask you, what's the difference between compassion and equanimity to you? Thank you. You know, I was, in, I was interested to discover when I began to do some reading and research on equanimity that a lot of the original stories on equanimity come from Islam, and they were borrowed very frankly by Jewish theologians and Buddhist theologians, but equanimity from my reading and understanding, is actually central and derives a lot from Islam. And 
The distinction between equanimity and compassion is that compassion is a response to suffering with the motivation to relieve that suffering. So compassion Mm -hmm. has an, an activating component, whereas equanimity has to do with perspective and balance and the ability to see suffering in the context of all the joy and sorrow in the world. Some people describe equanimity as the grandmother's view of the world. It's a very long view that allows us to really see with much less reactivity the nature of reality, to hold the big picture and therefore be less reactive. So by nature, equanimity has spaciousness and balance inherent in it. I know the difference between equanimity and uh, resilience, but I'm sure some of the people, our listeners, don't and may have some questions about that. Can you differentiate between resilience and equanimity? Well, you know, resilience, I'm not sure. Equanimity has some specific meanings. For example, in Buddhist practice, it's one of the four uh, sublime virtues or the... um, in what are called the immeasurables. There are four of them, compassion, sympathetic joy, loving kindness, and equanimity. So it has a very specific meaning in that context, whereas resilience is a kind of Western psychological concept that people define differently. I think personally, they overlap a lot because from my perspective, resilience has to do with how readily we're able to come back into balance. We get knocked knocked off balance all the time. That's life. You know, walking, Mm. just walking involves being knocked off balance with every step. We're off balance, Mm. come back into balance. And all of life has this contraction and expansion. It's not static. So in some way points to how readily we can find balance again, right? That's the, the bend of the, the yellow that doesn't break, you know, that comes mm. back as the tree, mm. even when there's a really big wind. And mm. that's very related to equanimity. I think that's a part of equanimity. And I think one of the misunderstandings of equanimity is this idea that it's static. And equanimity isn't static, it's dynamic just like resilience. Absolutely. It's cyclic. I want to ask you if you have any views regarding a regenerative mindfulness. What do you mean by that? Since we're moving, like we're shifting from the industrial age to the conceptual age, the industrial age was heavily reliant on the left hemisphere of the brain. And the age that we're entering right now, which is the conceptual age, is heavily related to the right hemisphere, which is creativity. We're facing a lot of like high beta levels, which is harnessing us into reaching sustainable impact at a personal level. Henceforth, then we cannot achieve sustainable impact because because we need to regenerate regenerate before uh, we reach impa- a sustainable impact. So what what are your views on, like, because the mind is like nature, you know, that's how we view it. And if we want to sustain a certain state of mindset, then we need to uh, regenerate our mindset. Does that resonate quite well? Very well. Yeah, that's beautiful. And the first time that I heard it articulated that way, That's a very exciting thought. And I certainly agree that being cut off from nature has been at our peril. And to the extent that we can see ourselves a part of nature, uh, it is essential for the survival of our planet. And I do see mindfulness as having a key role in that. On the many levels that you both named and implied in what you just shared, And, you know, one level has to do with just the insight into the nature of reality and understanding that we are a part of that reality 
and that you know our our very being extends beyond our bodies to one another and to the planet mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. illusion of separateness has allowed us to behave yes. in ways you know yeah. that are self-concerned at the cost of the planet and Unity. i think mindfulness yeah. makes us realize that yeah. to hurt the planet or another person is really like the left hand hurting the right hand you know that absolutely that, that we're all a collective we're all one in this yes. and then i think on another level what you implied in terms of moving from an industrial era uh, to a conceptual one in the industrial age we lived with this stark duality between mind and body exactly and to to a great extent we denied intuition absolutely favored yeah. rationality uh-huh. and the kinds of creativity that we need and that we long for in order to make these sustainable changes that you suggested really come from the domain of mindfulness i remember on one of my first retreats there were two world famous physicists who sat mm. on the retreat because that was how they could access the kind of intelligence that they needed to solve these very high level problems so it's not just artistic creativity that we access it's a very deep intelligence and have. innovation needs space absolutely yeah i love that so i'm um, moving on on to your part in the compassionate institute can you give us a brief about what the compassion institute is and why it began yes so we started the compassion cultivation training at stanford university at the school of medicine and then Thupten Jimpa who was the main author on the compassion training decided to create a separate nonprofit in which he could explore other goals he had of bringing compassion training into uh, medicine into education and into policing so i think it was 5 years ago he created this separate nonprofit called the compassion institute So any future endeavors you'd like to share with us or is it a secret for us to reveal later maybe <laughs> <laughs> Yes well right now i think the thing that i'm most excited about is compassion core in fall of of last year just at the end of last year uh, we gave almost 25 grants to people around the world who are working with refugees who are working with um, families of uh dying children who are working um with inmates in prisons who are working with autism and women who are victims of human trafficking and on and on and on to do compassion programs around the world hello everyone Welcome to the Wariif podcast, a place for dialogue on development that promotes social, economic, and environmental progress. My name is Abir, and I'm your host. It's my joy to connect with fellow developmental professionals, practitioners, academics, and enthusiasts. My mission is to make the world a more kind, safe, and clean place. I believe even small steps in the right direction can cause a chain reaction towards larger positive impact. Let's meet our guest and learn how they're working towards a better world. Hello everyone to a new episode of Warif. Today we're going to talk about the road to resolving conflict through compassion, forgiveness and equanimity. Our guest today is Margaret Cullen. I'll give you a little brief about Margaret. She's an inspiring 
person that I highly look up to. Margaret Cullen is a licensed psychotherapist and was one of the first 10 people to become a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher. For over 25 years, she has pioneered secular contemplative programs for a wide variety of populations, including physicians, nurses, HIV-positive men, cancer patients, overweight women, military spouses, college students, clinicians, and educators, as well as contemplative interventions for research studies at Stanford, UCSF, Portland State, Penn State, University of Michigan, and University of Miami. In 2013, she developed a mindfulness and compassion program for military spouses. And in 2015, she co-authored the book on mindfulness-based emotional balance, an evidence-based program that she piloted across the U.S. and Canada. As a clinician, Margaret was a facilitator of support groups for cancer patients and their loved ones for 25 years. In 2010, she was invited by uh, Thupton Jinpa to co-develop the Compassion Cultivation Training through the Center for Compassion, Altruism, Research and Education at the Stanford School of Medicine and currently as founding faculty for the Compassion Institute. She is also the founder of uh, Compassion Corporation, a nonprofit that provides grants for compassion teachers to offer free programs to under-resourced communities around the world. A mediator for almost 40 years, Margaret has had dozens of intensive retreats and has written extensively on mindfulness. Nothing brings her greater joy than contributing to a more compassionate world. Welcome, Margaret, to a new episode of Atwarif. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Abir. I'm delighted to be here. So for starters, let's begin with your academic and professional background. As a registered uh, psychotherapist, what have your responsibilities been like through your different career choices? Thank you. I Very early in my training as a therapist, I began doing groups with cancer patients and discovered how much I enjoyed the group process. And that became the foundation for a lot of the teaching work that I did throughout the years. That's very interesting. What convinced you to pursue a life as a teacher and therapist? That story is, from my perspective, one that kind of happened on its own Uh, There's a a Tibetan, famous Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Trungpa Rinpoche, one of the first to bring these practices to the West in the 60s in Colorado. And he's quoted as saying, follow the pretense of accident. And in a way, that's what I did. I began meditating um, while I was working in the film business in Hollywood in a very high stress, you know, very, very challenging situation. And half the year I would spend meditating and half the year on big Hollywood movie sets. And it was a very private thing, my meditation, but it led me to want to do something more meaningful with my life. Hmm. And then kind of accidentally people started finding out that I was a meditator and began asking me to teach and do different things as a meditator. And it eventually just became my my life path, my career. That's quite interesting. Did you meditate for six months? Because you said half the year. Well, the longest uh, silent meditation retreat I did was three months of silence. But wow. (laughs) Yeah, that was that was a long retreat. But The time off usually wasn't six months on and six months off. You know, I would work on a film for two or three months and then go on a retreat and then do another film and then go on a retreat. And it was kind of crazy because they were very extreme things to do, you know. Are you still doing film at the moment? Well, life has become a retreat uh, during COVID. I think for almost everyone, really, in the past two and a half years, yeah. And I would say that 
more and more as I got older, the line between retreat and life got more and more blurry. So this began to happen before the pandemic. Mm. And what made you think that it became blurry? Because really what we're cultivating in meditation practice on retreat is a way of life. And Indeed. it isn't brought back to everyday life. There's really no point to it. And it's a lifestyle. You have to do it every day. You have to commit yourself and dedicate some time for it, I guess, every day, right? You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I like you how flexible you are. <laughs> I'm I very think, conventional. <laughs> I think we get into trouble. A lot of people, because I've been teaching meditation for a long time, I think a lot of people get into trouble with this feeling that they have to do it every day. And that can become an obstacle. So mm -hmm. whoever is listening, I just really want you to know that you don't have to set it up as something so demanding. It does make a lot of sense. What feels good to your body, you listen to your intuition, as, as you mentioned. And we don't have to meditate every day. It depends on, we go with the flow. That's the best way to do it, I guess, um, not to force it. That's what I understood from you. So I have a curious question. Did you ever have a moment that sparked your first interest in this field? Yes. It's kind of a funny story. I was mm -hmm. in my late 20s and I was dating someone, a rather flamboyant man from Morocco, who was in the real estate business. And he went on, on a 10-day silent retreat. And this was in the late 70s. And he was kind of the last person that I would have expected to go on a retreat. It, it just, he, he was a kind of high-powered real estate person by day. And he was in a rock band at night. And he wasn't really kind of your typical meditator. And he went on a retreat and he came back and it clearly had a huge impact on him. I was very impressed. And I was also at the time really kind of lost in my own life, not sure what I wanted to do, not sure who I was, going in and out of depression. So I was suffering in my own way and looking for ways that I could address that. Mm. So that was the moment when Jacques came back from this retreat and I thought, okay, there's something there for me. And I signed up. I had never meditated before and I signed up for a 10-day silent retreat. And the mm. rest was history, as, as we say. Interesting. So what population does your work usually uh, encompass? My work almost always is a pretty mainstream professional population. It's very varied. It's how I met you. It's wonderful yes. that I meet people from all over the world and really incredibly interesting people like you who have oh, a sweet. spark of interest in compassion, in the power of contemplative practices to bring spirit of peace, a possibility of reconciliation to our very troubled world. So, you know, the populations are, as you mentioned in your kind introduction, have been very varied, mm -hmm. both uh, nationality, professions. I've done work in prisons. I've done work on military. Wow. Tell us more about that. Do you feel comfortable? Yes, sure. Like a story or something that comes to your mind. In 2016, I started something called Compassion Corps that you mentioned. The idea was to support all the certified compassion teachers that I'd been training to do the work that they love, the philanthropy that they love, by giving them small grants so they could offer programs for free to people who couldn't afford. Mm. And one of the first grants went to a colleague who's become a dear friend named Laura Naughton, who wanted to do a program at Angola Penitentiary 
the largest maximum security prison in the United States. Laura mm -hmm. uh, was a victim of a violent crime herself. Mm -hmm. And she went into Angola and offered the eight-week compassion training that you took, Abir, oh. to mm -hmm. inmates at Angola. And mm -hmm. the program grew because Laura is a brilliant teacher, because the inmates loved it. And it grew into a whole compassion movement at Angola Penitentiary. This one program flowered through Laura and the support that we were able to give her to the point where we actually created compassion days in the prison where we brought 150 people from outside the prison into the prison for a conference on compassion in a wow. security prison. We did this three times and we and created teaching assistance there and the program grew and grew. And now Laura and her teaching assistants have just completed a book about it that we hope to publish soon. Wow. And how was the feedback? Was it positive? It's been unbelievable, truly. Amazing. Uh, very humbling to see how much compassion is already in a place like Angola Penitentiary, kind of the last place you imagine compassion to flourish. Mm. Because the circumstances are yeah. so harsh. They're so difficult. And yet, of course, there for compassion and the kindness that's already there. It really changed my life to see it because I just had to change everything I thought about all the stereotypes that I had. So you were the co-author on a mindfulness-based emotional balance book. What was the need for this book to be published? And what are the key takeaways for those who haven't read it? So again, this was kind of following the pretense of accident. I had yeah. been invited to write uh, a curriculum for educators bringing together emotion training with mindfulness. And I piloted this around the US and Canada. Quite a bit of research was done on it. and then. The publisher, a new harbinger, asked me if I wanted to write a workbook about the program, and I did. It really wasn't my idea. It just kind of unfolded. What happened at that point is that mindfulness-based stress reduction had been around already for about 20 years. I'll see if I can make this long story as short as possible. There was a meeting with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala about emotion and a conversation about how to bring Western psychology around emotion together with contemplative training to really potentiate mm. both of them. And out of that came the first research study, which was called Cultivating Emotional Balance, which I co-taught at UCSF. And then these other programs grew out of that first research study. And I do find that we aren't typically taught how to work with our emotions. We aren't taught this in school. We aren't really taught this kind of explicitly through our religious practices or at home. Emotions are often suppressed, actually. So people feel threatened by their emotions. They don't really understand them. So bringing emotion, the kind of theoretical side, the understanding what emotions are, together with mindful awareness of emotions, really helps people find regulation and balance. So I have a question. I'm wondering, maybe you have an answer to this, because equanimity is a word that has different meanings in different languages. So I would like to ask you, what's the difference between compassion and equanimity to you? Thank you. You know, I was, in, I was interested to discover when I began to do some reading and research on equanimity that a lot of the original stories on equanimity come from Islam, and they were borrowed very frankly by Jewish theologians and Buddhist theologians, but equanimity from my reading and understanding is actually central 
and derives a lot from Islam. And the distinction between equanimity and compassion is that compassion is a response to suffering with the motivation to relieve that suffering. So compassion mm -hmm. has an, an activating component, whereas equanimity has to do with perspective and balance and the ability to see suffering in the context of all the joy and sorrow in the world. Some people describe equanimity as the grandmother's view of the world. It's a very mm -hmm. long view that allows us to really see with much less reactivity the nature of reality, to hold the big picture and therefore be less reactive. So by nature, equanimity has spaciousness and balance inherent in it. I know the difference between equanimity and uh, resilience, but I'm sure some of the people, our listeners, don't and may have some questions about that. Can you differentiate between resilience and equanimity? Well, you know, resilience, I'm not sure. Equanimity has some specific meanings. For example, in Buddhist practice, it's one of the four uh, sublime virtues or the um, in what are called the immeasurables. There are four of them, compassion, sympathetic joy, loving kindness, and equanimity. So it has a very specific meaning in that context, whereas resilience is a kind of Western psychological concept that people define differently. I think personally, they overlap a lot because from my perspective, resilience has to do with how readily we're able to come back into balance. We get knocked, knocked off balance all the time. That's life. You know, walking, mm. just walking involves being knocked off balance with every step. We're off balance, mm. we come back into balance. And all of life has this contraction and expansion. It's not static. So Absolutely. in some way points to how readily we can find balance again, right? That's the, the bend of the, the yellow that doesn't break you know, that comes mm. back as the tree, mm. even when there's a really big wind. And mm. that's very related to equanimity. I think that's a part of equanimity. And I think one of the misunderstandings of equanimity is this idea that it's static. And equanimity isn't static, it's dynamic, just like resilience. Absolutely. It's cyclic. I want to ask you if you have any views regarding a regenerative mindfulness? What do you mean by that? Since we're moving, like we're shifting from the industrial age to the conceptual age, the industrial age was heavily reliant on the left hemisphere of the brain. And the age that we're entering right now, which is the conceptual age, is heavily related to the right hemisphere, which is creativity. We're facing a lot of like high beta levels, which is harnessing us into reaching sustainable impact at a personal level. Henceforth, then we cannot achieve sustainable impact because, because we need to regenerate, regenerate before uh, we reach a sustainable impact. So what, what are your views on like, because the mind is like, nature, you know, that's how we view it. And if we want to sustain a certain state of mindset, then we need to uh, regenerate our mindset. Does that resonate quite well? Very well. Yeah, that's beautiful. And the first time that I heard it articulated that way, that's a very exciting thought. And I certainly agree that being cut off from nature has been at our peril. And to the extent that we can see ourselves a part of nature, uh, it is essential for the survival of our planet. And I do see mindfulness as having a key role in that. On the many levels that you both named and implied in what you just shared, and you know, one level 
has to do with just the insight into the nature of reality and understanding that we are a part of that reality and that, you know, our our very being extends beyond our bodies to one another and to the planet. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. illusion of separateness has allowed us to behave yes. in ways, you know, yeah. that are self-concerned at the cost of the planet. And Unity. I think mindfulness yeah. makes us realize that yeah. to hurt the planet or another person is really like the left hand hurting the right hand. You know, that Absolutely. We are that, that we're all a collective, we're all one in this. Yes. And then I think on another level, what you implied in terms of moving from an industrial era uh, to a conceptual one, in the industrial age, we lived with this stark duality between mind and body. Exactly. And to, to a great extent, we denied intuition. Absolutely. Favored yeah. rationality. Uh-huh. And the kinds of creativity that we need and that we long for in order to make these sustainable changes that you suggested really come from the domain of mindfulness. I remember on one of my first retreats, there were two world famous physicists who sat mm. on the retreat because that was how they could access the kind of intelligence that they needed to solve these very high-level problems. So it's not just artistic creativity that we access. It's a very deep intelligence that we And innovation needs space, absolutely. Yeah. I love that. So um, moving on, on to your part in the Compassionate Institute, Can you give us a brief about what the Compassion Institute is and why it began? Yes. So we started the Compassion Cultivation Training at Stanford University at the School of Medicine. And then Thupton Jimpa, who was the main author on the Compassion Training, decided to create a separate nonprofit in which he could explore other goals he had of bringing compassion training into uh, medicine, into education, and into policing. So I think it was five years ago, he created this separate nonprofit called the Compassion Institute. So any future endeavors you'd like to share with us? Or is it a secret for us to reveal later, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, right now, I think the thing that I'm most excited about is Compassion Corps in fall of of last year, just at the end of last year, uh, we gave almost 25 grants to people around the world who are working with refugees, who are working with um, families of uh, dying children. We're working um, with inmates in prisons who are working with autism and women who are victims of human trafficking and on and on and on to do compassion programs around the world. So I think that's currently what I'm most excited about. Wonderful. So how have you found your clients respond to mindfulness-based emotional balance? It's really interesting at year because, you know, I spent about 20 years teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction and then mm-hmm. mindfulness-based emotional balance and compassion cultivation training. They're all eight-week programs. They're all universal in secular language, contemplative programs where the kind of religious or philosophical roots have, have been taken out so they could be disseminated to people of all traditions. Um, So they have a lot in common. They have subtle differences. They have subtle differences. I think they draw different people. They have different results. MBEB tends to become a foundation for people to really build psychological well-being, I would say. Mm. 
people who are very stressed out, who are really feeling kind of tossed about by circumstances, uh, the pandemic, work, parenting, all the complexity of modern life tend to really benefit from MBEB. Interesting. It's a, it's a new methodology that you created. Yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. So in your experience, how do people typically respond to conflict resolution methods? Which have you found to be most beneficial? And why do you think that is the case? Yes. So although we don't specifically teach conflict resolution in these courses, as part of the teacher training, I added something that I learned from John Kabat-Zinn. It was originally a part of MBSR, although a lot of people didn't teach it. And it's what John called the Aikido of communication. I found it very beautiful, and I began to study it and to include it in a lot of my teacher trainings. And what is that, the Aikido? Can you tell us more about that? Aikido is a martial art that focuses on the resolution of conflict. So Aikido is physical, but it's actually a metaphor. It can be used as a metaphor, what's done in that martial art for just communication. There are Uh principles of Aikido that can be brought into communication without any, you know, need to engage physically with the other person. And two key principles of Aikido that really apply to the resolution of conflict have to do with entering and blending. So they're the difference between kind of pushing against another person when you're in conflict, fighting back, avoiding just kind of running away from the conflict, or collapsing, becoming a a doormat and letting the person run over you. So option number four is Aikido, which is actually to move in, to enter, to blend, to hear, to lean in. And it gives you tremendous power. The other person feels heard. You maintain your own self-respect and dignity, which is key. So it becomes a beautiful perspective on how to resolve conflict. Beautiful. And since you do a lot of retreats, do you think um, it, it has a potential, the practice of retreats towards conflict resolution? Perhaps. I think retreats don't always translate into conflict resolution because we're by ourselves working with our own minds and bodies. And, you know, I have a daughter who's almost 28, but when she was young, I would go off on retreat. You know, I wouldn't, I didn't go off on retreat until she was five years old because I, I couldn't bear to leave her for a week. But I noticed, like many other people notice, that we go off on retreat, we get very calm, and then we come back to our families and, ah, you know, we can't sustain it. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's very, it's very uh, disappointing to uh-huh. see how quickly all of that calm goes away when you're back in a situation with your partner and your child and they're impatient and you're impatient. So I don't think retreats are the best practice for conflict resolution. The other really powerful influence on me in my personal life and conflict resolution was my work with Marshall Rosenberg, who was an important teacher for me who developed Mm. a program called Nonviolent Communication. We don't have time to go into that, but that is a beautiful model with a tremendous amount. And and he took it around the world to very, very hotbed situations in the Middle East, in Africa with the Tutsis and the Hutus, with gang violence in the United States, all over. You know, he did incredible work. And there's a lot there, nonviolent communication around conflict resolution that I recommend to your listeners to explore. Thank you for sharing. So Margaret, lastly, do you have any success stories you can share about the power of compassion and forgiveness in relation to emotional training and compassion? Like how 
how do these themes tie together to create life-changing values, for example? I love that question, Abir. And we haven't talked about forgiveness yet, which I teach separately. And I also added into mindfulness-based emotional balance because it has so much power to heal the heart. And I think the story that I want to share is about forgiveness. It's a story I will never forget. I was teaching mindfulness-based emotional balance to cancer patients. And I tend to read a lot of poetry in my classes. And there was a, a Russian man in the class, and he told me early on that he hates poetry, and he finds it very annoying. And I said, that's okay. You don't have to like it, but I'm going to keep reading it, and you can just tune it out. Mm-hmm. And, um, he was very kind of argumentative okay. and, and kind of, in some ways, my favorite kind of student because he challenged everything and he was very skeptical and he had his arms crossed over his chest and he was a scientist. And then we did a forgiveness practice. And as we went through the practice, he began to cry. And the tears were streaming, streaming, streaming down his face. And he was in a terminal phase of cancer. And at the end of the practice, he said, I need to share with the group that I realized doing this forgiveness practice that as a child, I saw my mother raped by Russian soldiers. I closed Mm. my heart. I was so angry and I couldn't forgive those soldiers for what they had done. And Mm. what I saw in this practice was how I had denied love to my wife and children because I couldn't forgive the soldiers. And now with Mm. only a short time left to live, I don't want to deny them that love anymore. Mm. It was quite- That's very touching. Very, very touching that- One practice of forgiveness has the potential to release the heart and to kind of reclaim the possibility for loving fully. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Margaret, do you want to add any closing remarks before we wrap up? Just really to thank you, Abir, to thank you for reaching out, to thank you for who you are, for the work you're doing in the world, which I think is remarkable. And to let you know, I'm, I'm a big admirer. Oh, thank you so much, Margaret. I look up to you. You know that you're such a hero to all of us. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's my pleasure also. Thank you. Thanks for joining us and listening to Arif. Remember that you can make a difference in the world even with small steps in the right direction. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a rating and a review. If you have a suggestion or a comment for future episodes, email me at abwer at warif.com. Until the next episode, have a good one.